0: They'll even tell you what percentage have issues with the acrosome or the head of the sperm, which ones have issues with tails and what did they notice? So like were tails like kinked, were they curled or rolled? So there's a lot more detail. And then what I love about this is you can also add in DNA fragmentation. So how fragmented is the DNA in the sperm? How many breaks are there that would actually cause the sperm to function abnormally or cause the embryo to not be able to continue growing? So it's like, I love it. (laughs)
1: Welcome to Personalized by Vitamin Lab, the show where we dive deep into the world of personalization in healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. David Deiser. Please remember that the following discussion is for educational purposes only, and it's not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Speak with your healthcare practitioner first before integrating anything that you learn today. Join us as we explore the remarkable stories, breakthroughs, and possibilities that come with the pursuit of personalized healthcare. Welcome back to Personalized by Vitamin Lab. I'm your host, Dr. David Deiser. Today on the show, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Zadek, a naturopathic doctor and writer with a focus on reproductive health, endocrinology, and infertility. She uses the latest evidence-based methods to enhance her patients' fertility outcomes and provides clinical support for endometriosis, fibroids, and PCOS. Sarah is the author of the fertility guidebook, It Takes Two, and a Uterus, which addresses both female and male reproductive health. She's also written for multiple publications and websites across North America over the past decade. She currently practices at Conceive Health in Toronto, an integrative model combining naturopathic medicine with conventional fertility treatment. Please enjoy my episode with Dr. Sarah Zadik. Welcome back to Personalized. Hi, Dr. Sarah Zadik. How are you today?
0: Hi, David. I'm doing great. Thank you.
1: Very nice to meet you.
0: Yeah, you as well.
1: So looking forward to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. We, we've been doing this show for a few months now, and basically we've been interviewing integrated practitioners across the world about how they're individualizing their care. And I know that you've got a really cool practice and a really cool career going, and you're absolutely individualizing your care. So I thought it would be a great opportunity for us to chat. So I really I really appreciate it, and, and welcome to the show.
0: Oh, Thank you so much for having me here. And uh, yeah, and I love talking about how we as naturopaths can treat patients, both, you know, using evidence-based medicine, but also tailoring it for that individual patient.
1: Totally. It's the coolest thing. We're super lucky to be able to do this. And and you've been doing it at such a high level that you've built up a practice and a career and and dove into a niche deep enough that you've reached expert level. So you've written a book. (laughs)
0: I have. Yes.
1: You've written a book and your book's called It Takes Two and a Uterus.
0: Yes. Yeah. So this is a fertility guidebook. It was basically um, a companion for those who are looking for extra information on fertility. So what can I do to better my odds? You know, am I eating the right foods? How much exercise do I need? How much is too much? Can I have a cup of coffee? And what does the fertility journey look like if you do need to use medicated cycles or assistance? So I wanted to put together something that was a little bit more generalized to give information on the background of, you know, egg quality, sperm quality, why, you know, the uterus health matters for implantation, and also all those little tiny factors that given the whole big picture really contribute to our overall fertility and our aging, because reproductive health is also like intricately linked with our overall chronic health and aging
1: right oh such a cool topic congratulations Mm -hmm. on on the launch of the book thank you let's go way back so we can
0: take (laughs) the journey
1: all the way to the book because you've got an interesting past tell us about your undergraduate and the work that you did after your undergraduate and and that, that really got you into naturopathic medicine
0: yeah i always knew that i wanted to be in healthcare in some capacity like i just i love helping people i love biology i love using that knowledge to help others so my undergraduate thesis was in a genetics lab, and so my supervisor had been doing work on antioxidants and the aging process, and we were trying to figure out a way that we can incorporate you know, a health aspect as well. So we were looking at the immune function of fruit flies who were lacking certain um, antioxidant enzymes, particularly the sod enzyme or, or superoxide dismutase. So that was my project is looking at immune function um, when you challenge these flies with different bacteria and fungi and what would happen when you look at them at a normal like control versus the ones that are lacking antioxidants and then we kind of followed them for a couple generations and I didn't realize at this point that I was going to end up doing fertility and egg quality. But it ended up lining up so perfectly um, the way that now we look at overall aging, egg quality, and the impact of antioxidants on that. Wow. And so even when I test my patients now, when we're doing genetic testing, like we'll test the SOD2 gene to see if there is a predisposition for less antioxidant function. Wow. And then that'll prompt us to use more antioxidant support for supporting egg and sperm quality, which is like really cool.
1: That's so (laughs) cool. That's incredible. I love it. Full circle. That's so awesome. Yeah, I've I've been teaching this course to holistic nutritionists about lab diagnostics and they always want to get into treatments, right? Like they almost getting like how much antioxidant should I use and when should I use it basically? And I say that like the researchers are obsessed with this too. Like they're in there. If you just look through the journals, you're going to see that it's being studied. And look at you, you were in there way what I would say is way early studying antioxidants. So that's ridiculously cool. And then, did you work in pharmacy? Like, what is the pharmacy background that you have?
0: I did. <laughs> so it started as a high school co-op placement, and they were needing an extra assistant in the pharmacy. So I ended up getting hired when I was 16 years old, and was there for like over a decade. Wow! It was my my gig when I was in high school, and I kept going back all throughout my undergrad, post grad. And so, yeah, I just have a, have a background there in kind of mediating between patients and doctors, patients and insurance, patients and pharmacists. And that kind of gave me the foundation as far as working in healthcare in real life. Right. And then from there, I just continued my studies and became really into female health and female reproductive health specifically. And again, everything kind of just lined up on my pathway to really dive in and have that niche. And so, you know, sometimes as naturopaths, we start out so general, like in a very general practice, mm-hmm. because we kind of have to see everything. And then having this niche, just again, everything kind of lined up as far as, okay, you've got the basics as far as, you know, healthy diet, what kind of counseling to give patients with, you know, regards to you know, how much sleep they need and stress management. And so all these components come into play. But now we also have a lot more research over the last 10 years or so on, how other factors are influencing fertility. So more studies are coming out with regards to things like cannabis or environmental pollutants. And so again, we're getting more and more pieces of this puzzle. And I just feel so lucky to be a part of this and to also have my eye to like PubMed essentially, like gathering all all this information that I can.
1: Love it. The synthesizer. It's the best. It's so fun. (laughs) So you've had this background. So we have this genetic study research based work and then we have the pharmacy background and then you become a naturopath and now you work in an integrated clinic. So I do. Tell me about your clinic experience. Like what's it like working with other professions? And how did you get I know that your background leads us to this, but how did you get involved in this clinic in particular?
0: Yeah, so Dr. Tracy Malone was a supervisor of mine at CCNM, which is the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine here in Toronto, and um she knew that this was the area that I wanted to go into. And so her and her business partner, Jennifer Fitzgerald, who's also a naturopath, they opened up Conceive Health again in Toronto and they got their way into, uh, at the time it was called TCART, uh, okay. which is a fertility clinic in Toronto and basically like was able to forge this relationship with these doctors and, you know, giving them the information and presenting, you know, how naturopathic medicine can make a really big difference with their patients. Right. So, you know, we can make your numbers look better. We can help your patients to succeed if, you know, we work together. So they've been at this for about, I want to say just over 10 years now right. with this clinic. And so since then Cart has now turned into Trio Fertility and that's where we are now. Mm-hmm. So our clinical locations are actually embedded within Trio Fertility locations and downtown is where we have our, our main hub. And that's where they also do IVF cycles, cycle monitoring. They have the OR right on site. I'm also at the North York location, which does cycle monitoring as well as IUIs. And it's wonderful because we're able to share information between practitioners so easily. Like the communication's amazing. Like yeah. I can knock on an MD's door or an REI, a reproductive endocrinologist, their their door, and be like, hey, like I saw so-and-so today and we can talk about, you know, the, the different ways that we're trying to approach a case, mm-hmm. we can review different labs together as well. So if there's a lab that I think might be helpful, I can ask for their assistance in running something and we kind of go back and forth. And then we'll also be very open about our communication. So they'll know what I'm doing treatment wise. I'll know what they're doing treatment wise. Nothing gets you know left between the cracks. It's, it's really full service patient care for better outcomes.
1: That's so cool. I love it so much. That's really awesome. Can we go through what it's like to be a a couple entering your office, looking for fertility support? How does it begin? What is the journey like for a couple in your office?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I see couples as well as singles. So Hmm. I do have some people who come in being like, you know, they haven't met the right partner. Maybe um, they know that, you know, they're entering or getting close to 40 or, you know, have just turned 40. And so they're really thinking about the fertility timeline there. So whether it's a couple or a single, we see patients who are either just thinking about starting to conceive, like maybe they're, you know, earlier in their their 20s, whether they're in their 30s or even, like I said, 40s. Or we see patients who have been trying for quite a while and they're already with a fertility clinic or they've been with a couple different fertility clinics. So we go through with them what we call the 100 days of preconception. And so ideally, we want to. Help to get health under control for about three months before they even want to do either a medicated cycle or try naturally. And we'll, again, like any naturopathic doctor, we spend about an hour together in that initial visit. We also do couples consults as well at our clinic, which I love because again, it's both partners together. You're treating both, which is really important. Mm. Again, whether it's a single sex couple or, or heterosexual couple. And and we go through everything from their, you know, their health history, diet, lifestyle, all those factors. But I'm additionally also screening for specifically the factors that we know affect fertility. So, again, environmental exposure to pollutants, you know, what kind of products are you using in your house, on your body, so forth. Mm. And at the end of that visit, if they're already with a fertility clinic, there's a very good chance I already have access to labs. And oftentimes patients are so well versed in all of this. They'll come to me with their lab reports already printed out and say, here, this is what I've done so far. Like, where do we go from here? So I do some lab work. I don't run it on every single patient because, like I said, some of them come to me already having done quite a lot. And that's when I play either detective if something is, uh, if someone has come to me with unexplained infertility or we're diving right into what are our goals? Are we trying naturally? Are we trying to improve egg quality, sperm quality? Do we have things like endometriosis or PCOS, like other barriers to fertility? So I make a list of treatment goals for for patients, and then model that plan around our goals, mm-hmm. as well as them as the individual.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's go piece by piece, if if you don't mind. Sure. I know that you're individualizing care, so the <laughs> yeah. question can be can seem incredibly broad. But what? <laughs> What would be the lab assessments that you would want to see, say they're bringing them? What are you looking for? For example, if someone has had difficulty conceiving Mm -hmm. or has had trouble in the past, like what would be the environmental assessments? I know you mentioned SOD. What else are we looking at?
0: Yeah, so basic, basic, I'm doing cycle day three blood work, right? And that's what, what any even fertility clinic like a medical doctor fertility clinic will do as well is like cycle day 3 blood work so we're looking at estradiol progesterone LH FSH TSH thyroid stimulating hormone those are the basics so just like the just screening for how well are the ovaries functioning on you know day 3 of your cycle when the follicles should just start to be you know growing and are uh, recruited and starting to grow in some cases especially if someone is, say, older than 35, I would also run an AMH, so mm-hmm. anti-mullerian hormone, just to get an, an idea of, of egg reserves. And that's because here in Ontario, as naturopaths, like we can't requisition for ultrasounds. Mm. So again, in some cases, I'll actually write letters to medical doctors here saying, hey, so-and-so is my patient. They're coming in for a fertility assessment. They haven't ever had an ultrasound done before. We just wanted to check and do a fertility assessment. And so, you know, checking the number of follicles that are recruited or growing in the, in the ovaries. And, and also look out for anything like cysts or any abnormalities that might be caught initially on an ultrasound. Beyond that, naturopathically, I do like testing for vitamin D. Again, I see a, I see a patient cohort that is, you know, a lot of it's infertility-based, right? And with infertility, I'm looking for, okay, what could be going wrong? What could be missing here? So I do a lot of, like, vitamin D testing. I'll run ferritin, CBC, Thyroid antibodies are another really big one. I'm looking for autoimmune components. Mm-hmm. And I love the thyroid antibodies because it's a really inexpensive way of kind of screening for that first kind of set of autoimmune disorders without having to go into full-blown like immune panels, Yeah, which can be really hard to interpret. And there's quite a lot of them. It becomes quite a lot of testing. So that's like my basic, basic. We also do testing for vitamin B12. Again, depending on the the patient, if they're really fatigued, if a CBC comes back abnormal, if they have anxiety or any kind of mood issues, a lot of inflammation. For recurrent pregnancy loss, I'll do homocysteine, mm-hmm. which is a marker for inflammation and has been associated with, with loss and, and, and miscarriage. Those are kind of like the, the main big ones. And then anytime, again, there's the chance of it being implantation related. Mm -hmm. Our clinic is also looking at beta carotene and vitamin A. Okay. Right. Vitamin A being a necessary vitamin for embryo development, but also having too much beta carotene can impact estrogen receptor function. So we are also looking at, are you blowing way past your beta carotene and or not converting it into provitamin A as another kind of screening tool for implantation issues?
1: Oh, that's super interesting. I never heard that before. Thank Mm. you so much for that. What about on the male side? Do you have experience running the sperm quality and quantity test?
0: Yeah. So there are labs here that will do DNA fragmentation and just overall sperm assessments here. I do find that which lab you go to will present you with a slightly different report. So, for example, some of the more basic labs will just look at sperm count, maybe a little bit of like, you know, vitality or motility. But if you go with the really specific labs that are that even like the fertility clinics use for doing a comprehensive sperm analysis, I do find that they're a bit more, you get a lot more information. It's a lot more specific. Mm -hmm. And so you'll get, you know, sperm concentration, count, semen volume, motility and progressive motility. So, you know, can they just like twitch around or can they actually move in a certain direction? Mm -hmm. And then morphology. So the morphology is also a lot more, uh, there's a lot more detail to it with with some of the the bigger labs. And they'll even like tell you what percentage have issues with the acrosome or the head of the sperm which mm-hmm. ones have issues with tails and what did they notice? So like were tails like kinked? Were they curled or rolled? Wow. Um, so there's a lot more detail. And then what I love about this is you can also add in DNA fragmentation. So how fragmented is the DNA in the sperm? Incredible. How many breaks are there that would actually cause the sperm to function abnormally or cause the embryo to not be able to continue growing? Right. Right. So it's like, I
1: love it. You're like an inspiration <laughs> for paying attention during your undergrad. <laughs> That's what you are. <laughs> Pay attention during your undergrad, folks, because it might come in handy a little bit later. I love that so much. That's super cool. Uh, what? So like, OK, so now we have the two sides fully set up. You've done an a- excellent job at outlining what the approach might look like. Now, what happens if something's out of range? Uh, do you see that it's typically condition based when you see significant abnormalities on these labs and if so what would the conditions be that you most commonly see as potential cause of infertility
0: yeah i mean with just basic cycle day 3 blood work or that that early that early follicular phase blood work really i'm just looking at are the ovaries responsive right so i'm looking for premature ovarian failure or insufficiency so high fsh right and but normally you're you're going to get this flagged when the patient's a lot older so again late 30s early 40s i'm looking for you know how high is that fsh going and you know is time really not on our side or you know mm. are the ovaries responding well and growing follicles with estradiol i'm also checking to see you know again that's a little bit more pathological so if estradiol is too high or if it's too low mm. right that's also going to impact like the whole the whole reproductive cycle and then I also like looking at cycle day three progesterone because it'll also tell me a little bit about egg quality too, right? The idea that, you know, when the egg is ovulated, that surrounding shell of follicle cells will kind of close up or collapse on itself and be a little mass that secretes the progesterone, right? For, the, mm-hmm. for that luteal phase. So when you have a really poor quality egg or poor quality follicular cells, they're not going to be secreting the same degree of progesterone. And so that's when you can have either shorter luteal phases, you can have low progesterone in that luteal phase, and you can have abnormalities show up in that cycle day three progesterone as well.
1: You see it as low?
0: I see it as high on cycle day three. High, okay. Where it should be a bit lower. So if it's like a five or above, that's a little flag for me, like we might have some egg quality issues. If it's, you know, low, like in that lower range, that's usually more normal because progesterone is supposed to drop, you know, to bring on a menstrual period, right? Right. So you don't want it high because it should have already dropped by then. So that's usually, again, a little bit of a screening flag. It doesn't necessarily mean that anything is pathologically wrong. It's just, you know, are ovaries functioning? And, you know, is there maybe like a small little flag that there might be something up with egg quality, mm-hmm. right? And when you look at disorders like fibroids and, and endometriosis, you sometimes don't see serum estradiol go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of it at least as like hyperestrogen-like disorders, but it doesn't mean that you're going to see it in the serum. What it means is that the actual fibroid, the actual endometrioma, that is what is producing the estradiol. And it's a local production. And that, that estradiol is attaching to the receptors in the lesions themselves. Right. So it's not like it's like leaking out all over the place into the serum, it's, it's a lot more of a localized reaction. Yeah. So your patient could then have, have endometriosis and still haven't like within normal range estradiol on day three. And normal range being like, you know, 100 to maybe up to 300 or so.
1: Definitely. The receptors could be upregulated. Like this should, could be a genetic component to the receptors, right? It could just be estrogen in the local area too.
0: Exactly.
1: Can you speak to DHEA and testosterone a little bit? in infertility for females in particular?
0: Yeah, so I do sometimes will run like a PCOS panel that will Mm. include free and total testosterone. Again, that's when a patient has either that diagnostic criteria for PCOS, then I'll, I'll run those and look at those, more of the androgen side of things. So, you know, if patients haven't had a period in a really long time, or if they have really long cycles, so like 45 days plus, if they've ever been told that they have you know, a high amount of follicles in the ovaries or polycystic ovaries. Or say when we test that AMH, if the AMH is like really high, like abnormally high, that's a really good indicator of polycystic ovaries. Okay. So again, in those cases, then I would probably look at fasting insulin Mm -hmm. and fasting glucose. And actually, I should say that those two tests too, fasting insulin and fasting glucose, I run in almost every patient if they already haven't had it done just because of the impact that insulin has both on metabolic health and reproductive health. Cause if you think back to like, again, our physiology, we have insulin receptors in the ovaries. And so having too much insulin chronically can affect ovarian function. Okay. So again, in PCOS, I'm going to look at testosterone to see if it's elevated because there is a good group of, of people with PCOS who don't have high androgens. Yeah. And so then you don't need to use your androgen lowering herbs that tend to be sometimes go-tos for naturopaths, mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. It's just that you don't need to go really heavy on things like saw palmetto or nettles if androgens aren't super high, right? right? The issue could be insulin itself, just like too high of insulin and poor egg quality, mm-hmm. right? So again, it, it's about even PCOS is individualized. It used to be just like this one diagnosis, but there's actually four different types of it. Wow. And so you're going to treat differently depending on what type your patient has.
1: Okay. That makes sense. That checks out. That's in line with the show. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about the AMH. Like this is the biggest question I get, right? People come in with their AMH. Can it be boosted? Number one. Number two, would that help if it, even if it could be? And what's the percentile that sort of sends up flags for you?
0: Yeah. So you can have variation. And it will also vary where you are in your cycle, which makes sense, right? When we think about AMH, AMH is that hormone that is secreted by follicles that are about, I want to say between about five or even like two on the smaller end, two millimeters or five millimeters and up to, I think it's about eight or nine millimeters in diameter. So you have, I mean, it's just a hormone that's being secreted by the number of follicles that are there, more follicles, mm-hmm. more AMH, right? Right. And so we're using it as a marker over of ovarian reserve because we're seeing, okay, every cycle, how many follicles are the ovaries able to recruit for that cycle? And so I'm using AMH as a marker of, okay, what do we have left in, in our reserves and what's our timeline like? So if you have a really, really low AMH, we might already be kind of, and for lack of a better word, uh, like bottom of the barrel, right? Like the eggs that you have left are the last ones so to speak, in in those months. And so they might not be the best quality, Mm -hmm. right? So that's also a marker of time for me. Now, as far as can it move? Yes, absolutely. I have seen little increments up and down, like cycle to cycle, even if you're testing on the same cycle day. So like I mentioned earlier, we do cycle day three testing and I keep it that way to stay consistent. Mm -hmm. Because again, if you try to test in the luteal phase, you're probably going to get a completely different number. Right. Right? And or if you keep switching labs, you're also going to get different numbers because the machines might not be calibrated perfectly every single time or be the same. So I do say if you're going to use a lab, try to use the same lab for consistent numbers. And then as far as boosting AMH, again, it comes down to we are born with all the eggs that we'll ever have. You can't like grow new eggs. It's not going to (laughs) happen, but you can help.
1: I try to say to people like (laughs) it's about the number that are there and you can't increase that. Mm -hmm. but then people see these little shifts that you've explained that there can Mm -hmm. be changes over time it looks a little higher did i do something right and is that a good thing or not and i don't think it really matters does it
0: yes and no it could just mean that your fall you're like your, your ovaries responded a little bit better to fsh that okay that cycle right so, if FSH was a little bit higher than you'd like, so between like a 10 and 15, and then all of a sudden your AMH came up a little bit, then great, maybe the like the ovaries are responding better. Doesn't mean that again like you're getting a whole bunch of new eggs, but um, and egg quality is still going to be something that's completely different, right? right? So even though you can recruit the follicles and recruit potential eggs, you still have to work on egg quality regardless.
1: Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Then on the sperm assessment side, do you have any tools that you would use, for example, treatment programs or personalized care that you might consider if morphology is off, if count is down? What are some of the go-to tools that you would use in those scenarios?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's really different for every outcome that you see on on the sperm analysis. So if count is off, I'm looking at testosterone, mm-hmm. right? Like what, what are testosterone levels like? And so that would lead me to doing a little bit more hormone blood work, right? I'm also asking about concussion history as well, because that can affect the pituitary mm-hmm. and FSH and LH in, in males. And then whenever I see, again, morphology issues or DNA fragmentation, I mean, that can be, we're looking at a lot of antioxidants and a right. lot of anti-inflammatories, so I do like things such as, you know, curcumin and green tea, things that have like rosmarinic acid in it and going a, a lot heavier with, you know, CoQ10, carnitine, some of those other helpers. I mean, I use CoQ10 and carnitine pretty much across the board for egg and sperm quality because I think providing these gametes with energy is so critical, mm-hmm. right? And And a newer energy molecule that is like on the market getting a lot of buzz right now is NMN or nicotinamide right. mononucleotide, right? And we have to keep in mind that Infertility, fertility, we are using more the NMN version versus the nicotinamide riboside. So using NMN versus NR, infertility. So that's something to keep in mind as well.
1: Why is that? Has there been a study around that that's been...
0: It just so happens that, again, all the egg quality studies are using the NMN version. Okay. And I don't know if it's because NR requires an extra step of conversion to get to NMN. So NR is, is great. They're using it a lot in... Studies of, you know, like diabetes or metabolic health and cardiovascular health, which is great. But I think in fertility, we're kind of skipping the NR step, going straight to NMN. Mm -hmm. And that's just what studies are using. I don't know if that's quite the rationale, but if that's what they're using and that's what's getting results, that's the form I'm going to use.
2: Vitamin Lab revolutionizes personalized supplements, empowering health practitioners to create tailored supplement formulations that address each patient's unique needs. Bring personalized health to your practice and choose from over 200 professional grade ingredients to create vitamin formulas that improve patient adherence and result in tangible outcomes. All ingredients are sourced from the world's most trusted suppliers and Vitamin Lab provides hands-on support to help you formulate and launch personalization to your patients. Say hello to a new era of personalized supplement solutions. Go to getvitaminlab.com personalized to save $100 off your first formula.
1: So this this is a big conversation that I'm sure a lot of integrated practitioners go through, like, trying to explain how stress on the body, poor recovery, low immune function, how it impacts us. So typically we're like all used to talking about oxidative stress. But how do you explain oxidative stress to a patient when they're sitting in front of you, like, like never maybe even heard the term before, which is totally reasonable because it doesn't sound like a real word. How do you explain it?
0: <laughs> yeah, um... Actually, first of all, I'll explain what, what free radicals are. Like, what are reactive oxygen species? They are these molecules or like these little tiny reactive molecules that are a byproduct of metabolism. So your cells naturally make them just from us breathing and walking around and, you know, having all the bodily functions that we have. And your body has nutrients that you get from your diet to help keep them under control, right? So these little compounds are these little molecules are very reactive, And so in small amounts, you know, your body can kind of utilize them, pick a couple up, use them for signaling. But when they build up too much and they're not controlled by antioxidants, that's when they can start to attach to other cell components, your DNA, to proteins, to enzymes and cause damage. So the more that you have built up, it creates a greater stress. Greater stress creates damage. And that's why we use a lot of antioxidants. And this is how I rationalize using a lot of antioxidants in my patients is I'm, I'm like I'm putting you on this to help to protect all your, your cells and your DNA. We need to protect your eggs. We need to protect your sperm. If you have a high DNA fragmentation, like that damage is coming from somewhere, right? It's also coming from like poor repair mechanisms and things like that. But I'll start with the oxidative side of things. <laughs> and we'll kind of carry into that.
1: Totally, which could be improved if you're taking an antioxidant approach? I'm sure that the immune system could become more efficient, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and nowadays, like, we're also exposed to so many other sources of reactive oxygen species. Right. Like, whether it's air pollution or, you know, chemicals in our food supply and in our water supply, you know, charring of, of foods like vegetables and, and meats on the grill. I mean, that charredness is a source of oxidative stress too. Smoking, alcohol right? These are all things that are going to generate free radicals. And even, you know, what we call ages, advanced glycation end products, right? From having sugars being turned into these products that can also cause damage and more inflammation. So it's like inflammation and oxidative stress can be both very detrimental. They're different in their approach, but they're both things that we want to address when it comes to protecting our gametes.
1: Definitely. Do you have a preference for dietary prescribing in, in this patient population? What What's your framework for nutrition in infertility?
0: Yeah, um, it's all about optimizing body composition, right? So we do want body, body fat, especially for females, to be within a certain range so that we can ovulate, like that we're not shutting down reproductive function. But we also want good metabolic health because that's also going to impact our fertility. I like going with the 40-30-30, the so 40% carbs, 30% protein, 30% fats in the diet, I think that's a really nice balance. And I think a lot of people don't get enough protein. It's really filling. So I think we're, we're in such a society in North America of having these simple carbohydrates where food has been milled down and processed so extensively, like your body would never really see that naturally. <laughs> and so you're getting this flooding of sugars, you know, into your system faster than it ever would. And it's affecting our microbiomes. It's affecting our blood sugar and insulin balance. It's interesting because I see so many doctors screening for diabetes using HbA1c and fasting glucose, but not a lot of people are looking at fasting insulin. Not a lot of of practitioners are doing the HOMA-IR calculations, and I feel like that is a big part of this because you can have normal blood sugar levels and have hyperinsulinemia and then have insulin resistance, and that insulin resistance is going to impact our health significantly, even if you don't have like frank write out diabetes. So dietary-wise, I'm really trying to control not I shouldn't say control, but like educate my patients into decreasing that intake. Carbs are not the enemy. Like we love carbs. Like they're a fuel source for us and they should be. But the idea is to get those carbohydrates from as minimally processed grains as possible, as well as our legumes, fruits and vegetables, but especially vegetables. And so it's it's educating patients on, you know, a vegetable is a carb too right? (laughs) It's not, it's not just bread and pasta.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's not just our absolute favorites. It's these other goodies too. I bet you see both spectrums. Like I I know that in our practice, we see people on both sides of the spectrum who would say that 40% carbohydrate is ridiculously high. I'm sure you see people who are trying to follow a high fat diet or a high protein diet and are experiencing the chronic negative health effects of a low carbohydrate diet. Is that something you see too?
0: Not as much. I usually see it benefiting. It depends also if they're exercising. Mm. I will say that. So diet matters, but it, it also matters if they're pairing exercise and what kind of exercise. So are they burning it to the ground with HIIT workouts? Are they doing their strength training? Because the idea is like, yes, protein is great. And I drive that message home and all of my patients to get enough protein. But you have to be exercising too to, to really make it work for you, right? You need to be able to build muscle to improve that body composition. And every time you build muscle, those muscle cells are also going to create new mitochondria. So more energy production in your cells. Absolutely. Right. So this isn't just about like bulking up. I have had a couple patients worry about like getting bulked and I'm like, it's not going to happen.
1: <laughs> it's not going to happen. People dedicate their lives to it and still it's a challenge. I've got a presentation coming up for the Washington State Naturopathic Group for their upcoming conference, and it's all about optimizing for fat burning, optimizing for both lipolysis and beta-oxidation. So I've been studying a lot about the impacts of insulin and how when it hangs around too much, it suppresses lipolysis, but also when there's too many amino acids consumed, the gluconeogenesis pathway can be upregulated in a meaningful way that can suppress beta-oxidation too, or this burning of fat that we want for optimized energy production. So much more energy can be made from fat if you can optimize the mitochondria for that. And it sounds like you've got this strategy with, a, with a, like a well-balanced diet, lots of good exercise and antioxidants to support this pathway. But on the nutrient side of things, so far we've got into the vitamin D and the vitamin A. Are there any other nutrients that maybe you'd be interested in in fertility that might make a significant difference for someone?
0: Yeah, you know what? I find that vitamin C and E are a little bit like we kind of, I don't know, sometimes we just kind of forget about them or not give them. We don't think they're as important as they are.
1: A lot of people don't eat fruits and vegetables. Like it's not a given.
0: Yeah, or like people take vitamin C in the winter to like avoid getting sick, but we never really think about vitamin E or think about the right amount of the two together. And I think it's important to supplement both of them together because they recharge each other. They extend their antioxidant capacity when, when you prescribe them together. And just also, like from a pathological perspective, I mean, we're using vitamin E to help with uterine lining thickening, to help with sperm quality as well. And it, again, it's a great antioxidant. I'm using it a lot in endometriosis as well. So I think that vitamin C and E are a little bit, can be sometimes undervalued in some practices when we think about overall. I mean, there are so many different supplements you can prescribe for, for fertility. And sometimes we go with more of the heavy hitters and we forget about the little nutrients. Yeah. But I think they're just as important. <laughs> it
1: can sound too simple. <laughs> yeah. Because if someone's yeah. sitting in front of you and you're like, you need more vitamin C. Come on. You must have something better than that. No, maybe maybe this is what you need.
0: Just go to your regular drugstore. Like, get whatever is there. Like, it doesn't have to be special or fancy. Unless they have, like, histamine issues or, like, allergic issues with, with vitamin C. But, yeah, it, there's it's readily available and really easy to prescribe.
1: Definitely. What about the exercise principles? I know you spoke a little bit about, about about strength training, but what what is the approach that you may take for someone who has no exercise history, who who's working in infertility right now?
0: Mm-hmm. So we start low and, and kind of work our way up. And the first thing I, I ask my patients is, what kind of movement or activity do you enjoy? Like, what would seem fun to you? Like, is it dancing or Zumba? Is yeah. it getting into a pool and just kind of like... Off and, and you know being you know without gravity on you. Are you a gym rat? Do you actually like going to the gym and using equipment? Would you prefer doing classes? Do you want to stay at home and stay away out of away from everyone and and, and other people's eyes and just do your own thing on a like with a YouTube video? What would make you comfortable? What would get you motivated to to do something? And so we, we kind of work with those activities first and finding out. Okay, well, what activities would, would benefit us both from a cardio perspective? but also strength training and resistance component. From there, we talk about the duration and frequency. So I usually recommend about two hours every week. Again, you can do either one hour twice a week. You can do 20 to 30 minutes several times a week. So do what works with your schedule. Some people have crazy schedules. Like they're either really long days or they're working way too many hours per week or it's just really hard to fit it in. So we talk about having how we can carve that time out of their schedule to fit it in Again, even if it's only 20 minutes, it still will make a difference, right? Um, So we start with those basic principles, and then we talk about intensity, right? So when you're first trying something brand new, if it's a new class you're taking, if you're starting with resistance bands or free weights, starting low and slow. I even recommend if you're doing like a YouTube video or doing a class, like do the first time or the first round of it without any additional weights, or like keep it really, really light, like one to two pounds, just to kind of get the motions under your belt, before adding on more weight or more intensity. And the same thing with if you're going to try jogging or cycling or swimming, it's, okay, you're not going to be an Olympic athlete right out the gate. Like, go easy on yourself. You're going to take breaks. For sure. Monitor your breathing. Monitor your heart rate. Like, keep in tune with yourself, right? And know when it's time to take a break or time to slow down. And if you're feeling great, then amazing. Then keep doing what you're doing and we'll keep building on it. Yeah. So I like those regular check-ins because I want patients to feel to keep going and and feel motivated to remember the feeling when they finished, because like that's that's the driving feeling.
1: That's the feeling that's gonna get you to do it again. Right. That's super smart.
0: So we have to remember that.
1: One place of practice I have zero experience in is supporting someone or a couple going through IVF. Do you have some general guidelines, general principles that practitioners might want to consider when they're supporting people going through IVF?
0: Yeah. um, Keep in mind your patients are going to be doing a lot of appointments. It's a lot of blood work. It's a lot of ultrasounds. They are going to be in that office or in that lab like multiple times a week in some cases. So they're taking time out of work. Oftentimes they can't tell their work what they're doing. And so I tell them to make sure that they make space for it in their life. Right understand that this can be a very, a very hard journey. And it's not even just, I mean, if you're doing egg freezing, you can usually get through cycles within like, you know, maybe two months total. Mm -hmm. But for someone going through IVF, it could be years. And I have seen those patients who have to do repeat cycles, whether they either didn't get embryos the first time around, or they got embryos, they started doing transfers and the transfers weren't taking. Um, then they stop and want to work on preconception care with us, and then try another cycle. In Ontario, we have one funded IVF cycle available, so sometimes they're they're waiting on that and doing, you know, IUIs or intrauterine insemination. In the meantime, it's a lot, and so when someone has been going through this for a, such a long time, oftentimes I'll tell them to go take a break. Like if the AMH isn't too bad and like their age isn't a factor, I'll say, you know, what, go take a little mini vacation, whether it's a staycation or an actual like going away somewhere. But like take a break, recharge, come
1: back. That's a good strategy.
0: Yeah. So as practitioners, we can be that support and tell them that's okay to do. Mm -hmm. Right. You have to take care of you because if you're you know, you're losing sleep over this, you're really anxious or even depressed. Like we have to work on mood now. Because those are also factors that can impact your fertility.
1: Well, it sounds like it's a good use of our time and and something I haven't considered just that their lives have then become quite hectic and incredibly busy. And that can cause issue as well.
0: And a little bit secretive, too, right? There are certain people that they can't talk to about this, whether it's family hounding them, like, why aren't you pregnant yet? I've seen that experience with some patients. To the, like, no one at work knows what I'm going through, and I have to sneak away or, like, take time off to to be here to do this. Right. So we have to realize that these patients are sometimes they feel really alone, especially if they get a diagnosis of infertility or that something did pop up as being abnormal you know, it's really hard. They feel very alone because, you know, I mean, until maybe social media came along and now we have more support groups available, but it's it's a very isolating experience.
1: Definitely. But it sounds like your office would be a good place to hang out and, and chat about those, <laughs> those challenges. Oh, yes.
0: It's a very busy office.
1: <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. Let's take a bit of a right turn here and just highlight some of the experiences you've had in your career that have maybe led to this book. First, can you tell me what it's like? To write a book on a topic that you're so passionate about, what was it like for you?
0: Uh, you know what? I, I don't mean to sound like I'll try to be humble, but it it was pretty easy for me to do the actual writing part of it. (laughs)
1: Love it, love it.
0: (laughs) Honestly, it took me about two months to actually write the book. (laughs) But this is after like years of of research accumulation. This is after like I've been writing on medical topics since like 2015 right? I've been published on websites and different publications since then. So this has just been like, it's just been accumulating ever since then. Mm-hmm. And now I got to write not for someone else, but for me under my name, like under my own book. Yeah. And uh, this was research I was already doing, helping with treatment plans, conveying information to my colleagues, like we share a lot of data together to try to, you know, help improve outcomes across the board in our clinic. And so I basically have my own database or database of information, research, my own little notes that I put here and there, my, my impressions of what I think might be happening based off of pathophysiology. And again, I kept, um, I keep my ear to certain fertility support groups, as well as just like listening to like things that my patients say as far as what they're, what they're missing, what they're looking for. And that, that same question kept popping up of what else can I do? Like I'm already doing this, I'm doing this, like what else will help me get pregnant Do I need to give up coffee? You know, can I have this glass of wine if I get my period again? And I thought, I need to create this resource. And there are other books out there on fertility. I just found that some of them were really dense and really hard for patients to get through. And not all of them approach also the male side of things. And that's also why I I named this book, It Takes Two and a Uterus, is because there's three main components and we can't forget about them. So you need a good quality egg, you need good quality sperm, and you need a healthy uterus for it to implant. And if you're missing one of those, like you can't make a baby, right? So, and, and I leave that little, that dot, dot, dot space to as a placeholder for everything that happens in between there. The genetic factors, the family history, the current health concerns, the, you know, the body composition, the lifestyle and dietary factors, it, it's all the components and also because like on a microscopic level, we still have no control over what happens. Right. You can have a great euploid embryo. You could have an, uh, you know, a uterus that checks out as far as microbiome and not having endometritis, and it still might fail. And that's just biology because you can put all the components together. They still might not gel together, right? So we have to, we, we want to do as much as we can, It doesn't guarantee results every time. But I also tell patients that everything that we're doing also supports your aging health so that no matter what your family ends up looking like, whether it's, you know, with a baby or five cats or adopting or whatever it is that your family ends up looking like, you're going to have more health years with them, right? Like you're improving your quality of life for you and your family. Definitely. And I think that's a really big takeaway.
1: Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. (laughs) You've brought up something a couple times now that I I like literally have to ask about or if people are going to be on me about this. And it's coffee when people are trying to conceive. Can you still have caffeine?
0: Yes. short. Okay. Short answer is yes.
1: (laughs) Short answer. Yes.
0: (laughs) People come to me and they're like, I was so afraid you were going to make me stop coffee. And I was like no, 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 I'm realistic. I get it. <laughs> now there are certain cases where that's not true, but the majority of the time I'm usually saying, yeah, you can have one cup in the morning, get yourself going. Totally fine. Yeah. Right. If we have genetic testing done, then I'll also know how fast they metabolize caffeine. So if they're a slow metabolizer, I'm a lot more, like I'm a bit more comfortable if they have it earlier on in the day, but I say like nothing afternoon for a slow metabolizer. If they're a fast metabolizer, then we give a little bit more leeway. And so, and as well, how well those enzymes are working may may also give me insight into how much they should be able to consume per day. So, is it just one a day? Could you get away with maybe like one and a half? Mm -hmm. I mean, our guidelines usually say about three hundred milligrams maximum per day. I think that's very generous three hundred milligrams of caffeine a day for fertility. Mm. But it also depends on the person. Are you coming to me as like a healthy twenty five year old with no known issues? You're just trying to you know get your your body into the healthiest position that that you can be in before conceiving and if so then like yeah you can have two cups that's fine right mm-hmm. but maybe not six right. like six is going to be too much and i've seen people do that before they just drink it by the pot full and i'm like that's too much
1: you said it was okay Doc. <laughs> you said it was fine. in
0: moderation in moderation right So this is where we got to keep the patients in mind
1: what about alcohol this is like a total end other end of the spectrum for me because i believe that coffee is healthy but what but what about alcohol is that a big no-no
0: you know what this is a tough one because the research is so mixed Mm -hmm. so i was doing a lot of research on this and i found that italians so those that are genetically italian they were showing different correlations with fertility outcomes So as opposed to a lot of other countries, and I I don't have the full list, I think there was like five of them, including North America, and I think it was the UK, there was a lot of connections between alcohol intake and infertility. The same correlation was not found in Italians, which I thought was really interesting. So again, genetic component, right? I mean, alcohol on its own is a toxin. You have too much of it. like I'm sure everyone understands the feeling of a hangover, like that's a toxin, right? So, I generally shy my patients away from it as much as possible. Now, if they've been undergoing fertility treatments for so long or they're trying naturally and it's been like six months and then they get their period again, mm. I'm like, okay, you've, you've been really good. You've been a without alcohol for so long. Go and enjoy your glass of wine. Like, again, but it, it, we have to make sure that it doesn't get out of control. Yeah. So, it's going to be like a six ounce glass, not a box of wine. <laughs> like, you know what a I mean? Box. Or not like the whole, not like yeah. the whole bottle. So I think it's important to have these conversations because we don't want to make patients feel so stressed out that they're depriving themselves. But we also need to balance the fact that we really need to keep in mind that moderation. You don't want to overdo it because that could be a factor in fertility, right? And, and alcohol, I think it's more prominent when you get to the alcohol abuse side of things. So when you're really up that, like, I don't know, 12 drinks a week or so or more, Now we're seeing nutrient deficiencies. Okay, Mm -hmm. so now this is adding another layer onto ways that alcohol can impede fertility. Because now you're taking away nutrients that should be used for, for fertility and egg quality or sperm quality. And you're causing more stress on the liver. Well, your liver does a lot for you. Like, we need to be really gentle with, with that organ that we rely so heavily on for so many things. Definitely. Right? So, we ha- I, have, I have realistic talks with my patients as far as, you know, what could be manageable and where that line is.
1: Well, I think that sounds very reasonable and rational as an approach. Now, we've been doing this show for quite a long time now. And what we found is that people typically have... Quite a personal journey that's sort of inspired their career. Is there a journey or a personal reason that you've actually found women health as, women's health as your niche?
0: Um, it just feels like something that doesn't get enough attention. Like, mm-hmm. I guess, kind of working through when I was younger, women were just always given the pill for everything. Like, OK, you have heavy periods. Here's the pill. You have a lot of cramping. Here's the pill. And there weren't there's not a lot of options. And that always really bothered me. And then when I was, uh, I can't remember how old I was. I was maybe in my early 20s or mid-20s when I found out that I had endometriosis. And that also now propelled me to look a lot deeper into, okay, yes, I had the genetic predispositions. I didn't know I did. I just knew that my sister also had it. And now working in a fertility clinic, we see now I'm seeing these disorders so much more and it's impacting not just their quality of life from a pain perspective, But it's also impacting their egg reserves, their egg quality implantation, right? This is a a major inflammatory and immune disorder within our reproductive organs. We're around the pelvic cavity. So for me, it's been, again, it's been this journey that keeps, I keep getting into a more and more narrow direction, essentially, until like now I'm kind of like in the perfect little spot, education-wise, personal-wise, clinically for, for treating this. Good for you. Yeah.
1: So cool in the spirit of personalization, is there something about you that you feel comfortable sharing that most people don't know?
0: Oh, I'm a pretty open book, to be honest. Okay,
1: (laughs) everyone knows everything. (laughs) So
0: so. I'm pretty open with my patients and I am in my book too. And that's what I also love about writing for me is that I can include my personal story. Yeah. So I talk about my journey with exercise and how like I was that kid in high school who hated running. Um, I did gym class because like my friends did it and it was kind of fun. But I also like I did not like the forced, the forced exercise, the first you have to, you know, do burpees or, you know, run this amount of distance in this amount of time or it made it really unenjoyable for me. So I fell into exercise again, watching my mom. And so she has these like old workout videos from the 80s and 90s. And I used to love being like a kid in the living room with her watching yeah. her do all these like step aerobics and, and fun things. And so as an adult, I actually found the same tapes on DVD. and I still do them to this day and I love it oh
1: wow that's super cool
0: and so I I really got into it I could just feel like this other thing inside of me as far as like there's this drive to start running like I want to be a runner and I want to be really flexible I want to be good at yoga I want to be able to like be very nimble with my body and have a lot of strength and control over my body so a friend of mine helped me get into running we started doing trail running together and like it was like an instant addiction I just I loved it so I've been running ever since I was 24, 25. Like, I only just started then. I do braces every year. I've done a half marathon. I'm not super fast, mm. but I just really enjoy it. It's like, it's my stress relief now. So that was my exercise journey.
1: That's so cool. What What would you say to your teenage self about running?
0: Uh, hang in there. <laughs> And I was a lot bigger too when I was younger. Like I wasn't in the greatest health. I did have a very high carbohydrate high refined carb diet. I have a huge history of you know diabetes and metabolic disorders and, and thyroid issues in my family. Sister has endometriosis as well. So there's a lot going on. And when I had my genetic testing done, the amount of red flags, it was like,, whew, it was like a Christmas tree. Yeah. so <laughs> So I thought, this is why okay, this is why I'm struggling. And then this is how I can fix it. So since then, I've been using that that individualized, um, those individualized results to change my own metabolism, to change, you know, how my body can, you know, have a healthier composition. So what exercise do I respond best to? What kind of diet do I respond best to? And in doing so, I've managed to really keep all of those metabolic parameters under control. For now, I mean, knock on wood.
1: <laughs> you will. You will. I bet you that's such an awesome tool when you're sitting with a person, Yeah, you know, who's maybe worried about their genetic results, for example, because it can feel quite daunting to see uh, this one. OK, these are the SNPs that are present and this one has research and there's some human trials. And it's actually, you know, kind of important and also very helpful. People can then, you know, kind of turn inward and shut down. Mm-hmm. But maybe telling your story could open it up like, hey, these are actually uh, we can actually do something about this
0: absolutely,
1: and support you in a way that's individualized.
0: yeah, I see it a lot with diabetes. You know, someone comes in they're like, "Well, my mom and dad are both diabetic. I've been flagged with pre-diabetes. You know, it's been running in my family for for generations. It's just something that is. And I'm like, no, it's not something that is. We can try to like we can try to work against this. Like there are tools that we have to help prevent you from going full diabetic, needing insulin or needing medications or we can at least, you know, get medication doses down. Like we can improve your health.
1: Absolutely. It's
0: so empowering. I love it.
1: Super empowering. Can you please tell our audience where they can find your book?
0: Yeah, so my book is available on Amazon, both American and Canadian, as well as Chapter Syndigo, Barnes & Noble, if you're in the States. I'm not in stores, but I am online. So you can get paperback, hardcover, ebook if you prefer. Yeah, available everywhere.
1: Really cool. And where can people connect with you on social media or online?
0: Yeah, so I I am on, I don't do a lot of social media, I will admit, but I am on Facebook and Instagram. So you can find us there. Um, you can also check out conceivehealth.com, which is our uh, clinic website as well for more information on preconception care. Or check out my website at uh, sarazadicfertility.com.
1: Oh, so great. Thank you so much, Sarah. What a great time. I really appreciate your, your spending the time with us and bringing this niche to the show is something we haven't spoke about yet and I don't have a lot of experience in your niche so I'm really grateful for your time thank you so much
0: yeah thanks so much for having me I really enjoyed this
1: <laughs> we'll talk again soon
0: okay sounds good thanks David bye. bye
2: thanks for joining us for today's discussion what about today's podcast resonated with you be sure to tag at dr david Deiser and at get vitamin lab if you're learning from and enjoying this podcast, please let us know by subscribing to our YouTube channel and follow the show on Spotify and Apple. And don't forget to leave us a review. It's the best way to support our podcast and it helps others find us. To learn more or book a demo to explore what personalization could do for your practice, please go to www.getvitaminlab.com slash personalized.